Today we are beginning a sermon series on the book of Genesis, which we will do in just a minute. I'll set it up. But before we do that, would you turn to your left and your right, introduce yourself to your neighbor, tell them your name, where you're from, and your darkest secret. Go. seats. Okay. Wrap it up, wrap it up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One more time, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the word of the Lord, amen. So today we begin our spring sermon series on this lovely spring day. Uh, We begin our spring sermon series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We may dip our toe into Genesis chapter 12 a little bit, but the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we're not preaching the whole book, um, I wish we could, um, but, but time would, would call us to slow down in these first 11 chapters um, and really camp here. And so here's how the book of Genesis is broken up. Uh, first 11 chapters are known as the creation of the world, the foundation of the world being set. And then Genesis 12 through 50, is no, the rest of the book is known as the creation of God's people, the foundation of God's people. Genesis 12 is where we meet Abram, who will become Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that will then be the people of God throughout the rest of the Old Testament, them and their descendants. But Genesis 1 through 11 doesn't deal with God's people, it deals with God's world, God's creation, the creation of the cosmos, the fall of man in the garden, uh, Cain and Abel and the first murder, and the flood account in Genesis 6 through 9, and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10. So we have this um, incredible uh, set of events that, that really, if you, if you kind of back away from it, you realize, oh, these are, the, these are the foundational pieces of what we call human history. And essentially, if you want to know the importance of the book of Genesis for not just understanding uh, human history, every other book of the Bible, Exodus through Revelation, every other book of the Bible quotes, directly quotes, or directly references the book of Genesis, So the other 65 books all would call back to us to say, hey, if you want to understand the rest of this story, you need to understand what's going on here. And so Genesis 1 through 11 that covers these foundational pieces of the grand story of the world need to be 
um, understood, don't need to be rushed through. What's going on in these chapters that is so critical for us to understand the rest of the story? So we're beginning in the beginning. Actually, today, what we just read, uh, we're going to begin before the beginning a little bit. Uh, And these two verses that were just read, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, often get skipped over, maybe not even intentionally, but they kind of feel like um, just kind of a brief intro to, then we get to the creation story, you know, on the first day, on the second day, on the third day. And that, that's true, uh, but these first two verses are really easy just to kind of gloss over and, and think, well, this is just kind of setting up everything else. We don't really need to camp here. Had one of our uh, band musician uh, members this morning <laughs> say, I think I've read Genesis 1, 1, and 2 more than any other passage, any passage in Scripture because that's how I always start my like, yearly Bible reading plan, and then it dies off. So, but I've read Genesis 1, 1 through 2 a ton. Very familiar with those first two lines. And in these first two verses are, are a deep well. They're, they're cosmic-sized things happening in these first two verses. But if we're going to understand the whole book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, and then these first couple verses of Genesis 1, we need to understand what is the whole book of Genesis trying to tell us. The purpose for which Genesis was written is really important for us to understand if we're going to understand each section of the book of Genesis. So who wrote Genesis and why did they write it? Because here is my promise to you as we study these first 11 chapters. You will have questions and questions are welcome. Your scripture is not afraid of your questions. I hope you have a ton of questions after we read Genesis 1 through 11. Um, I promise you though, Genesis 1 through 11 will not answer all your questions because it wasn't meant to. That Genesis 1 through 11 was written to a people for a specific purpose, and it was not written to you in 2023 with your postmodern, post-enlightened, rational mind, and with the questions that may come up when you read these texts that you would go, oh, well, how do, why was there a tree, and what about the days, and what about evolution, and, and you go, great, bring all of that. That's just not why it was written. So it's not going to answer your 2023 scientific questions, because Genesis is not a science book. It's a history book telling you a story. And so you have to start to go, okay, well, if I'm gonna understand each page, each mysterious page of Genesis, then I have to understand why it was written. Who wrote Genesis and why did they write it? Well, Moses wrote Genesis. Who was Moses? Moses, we will meet if you follow the biblical storyline in the very next book after Genesis, book of Exodus has a crazy birth story. There's genocide going on in the land of Egypt. God's people are enslaved in Egypt by this point in the story. And so Moses gets put in a, in a basket on the, on the Nile River. He gets raised and found uh, by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised in Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's courts. Crazy story. Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness. Long story before Moses finally comes back to Egypt and with his enslaved brothers and sisters says, I'm here to set you free. Let's go to the promised land that God promised us. And all these Egyptian slaves who have been slaves for 400 years are going, okay, who exactly are you, Moses? And who exactly is this God you're talking about? Who in the world do you think you are coming and telling us that this God that you tell us about, that we've heard stories of from our forefathers that have passed down, but we don't know you and we don't know this God. We know that guy, Pharaoh, who owns us. We know that guy, Pharaoh, who makes us make bricks without straw. We know all of his gods and the pantheon of gods that he has. And he's got a Nile God and a sun God and a harvest God. He's got all these gods. But who are you talking about, Moses? And what kind of promised land are you talking about leading us to? And Moses says, let me answer you. Here's Genesis. So Moses delivers Genesis to a group of millions of former slaves as they are leaving slavery 
in the wilderness headed to a promised land to show them the story of which they are a part of. This is your God, not these Egyptian gods. This is your God. And this is why he made you. As Alistair McIntyre says, philosopher says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do in the world? If I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? That's what Moses is doing. He was the ancient world, Alistair McIntyre. This is your God. This is why you exist. This is why he made you. This is why he made the world. This is the purpose for which you were made. And by the way, this is what went wrong in the story. And this is how it's gonna be made right. All that's in Genesis. Genesis serves the same purpose for us that it did for the original readers. It was written to them. It wasn't written to us. It was written to them. It was written for us. And here's what it was written for. I can only answer the question, what am I to do in the world if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? That's what Genesis is saying to us. This is your God, and if you know who your God is, you will know who you are. This is who you are because this is who your God is. This is why we've come to be maybe too obsessed. I get some of it, but maybe too obsessed with the power of an origin story. There is a lot of power in origin story. We've maybe overdone it. Um, but you all know this in literature or in, in cinema, um, the power of an origin story can help make a lot of sense and give a lot of beauty and meaning and purpose and color to the story that you're watching. What's the origin story? How do we get here? Why is there this conflict? Why, how did they get this power? This is like Spider-Man, Spider-Man's origin story. This is Harry Potter. You're not gonna understand Harry Potter unless you know what happened to his parents and the story they were a part of and the lightning bolt on his head and what, what in the world, how did this happen? You need to know the origin story if the story you're reading is gonna make any sense. Star Wars, Luke, I am your father does not matter if you don't know an origin story, okay? Sorry for the spoiler alert, but you've had some time, okay? I just watched it like three years ago, but still, it's too late for you. So there, there's, there's, there's this like, oh, if I'm gonna understand this, if this is gonna mean anything, if, this, if I'm gonna find myself drawn into this story, I need to understand the origin story, the history of this story. That's what Genesis is doing for you. Whether you know it or not, Genesis is your origin story. If you wanna understand your story, which we all do and we all should, you can't know your story until you know the story. Your little, 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 little dot of a story will not make any sense if it doesn't know and understand the timeline story, the grand story that your story is a part of. So Genesis is the history of our histories. Genesis is the story before the story. And so anything that's happened to you or been done by you in your personal story, you will find its roots its cravings, its longings, its explanation, its confusion, and its meaning in these original stories of Genesis 1 through 11. That's why Moses wrote Genesis. To tell a people the story of the history of their world, where they came from, why they exist, who they exist for, why is there suffering in the world, why is there evil in the world, why is there death in the world, oh, and how is redemption ever going to come into this story? Genesis sets the stage for all of those questions. We should feel like another, I'm gonna give me a lot of references today, a lot of metaphors, okay? We should feel like we're in the opening pages of Lord of the Rings, like we're in the Shire. 
Like the storyline has not been developed yet. The plot line has not been developed yet. But there, okay, I feel like we should all feel like we're on the cusp of a grand epic tale. And we need to start here if we're going to understand how the rest of this thing unfolds. It will not make sense if we don't start here. This is the story that sets up the rest of the story. And so every mysterious page of this book, especially every mysterious word of Genesis chapter one, which is one of the most, we'll talk about a large chunk of Genesis one next week, but it's one of the most mysterious, mind-blowing chapters in the whole Bible. And if we're gonna understand every mysterious word and every mysterious page, we have to understand that every mysterious word on every mysterious page in Genesis one through 11 was trying to tell us two things, who your God is and who you are. That's why Moses wrote Genesis. So if Genesis, that was a long intro, but if, if Genesis is meant to show us who God is so that we might know who we are, how does Genesis one, one through two show us that? What does it reveal to us about the God that it's talking about? I said earlier with our pastors this morning, it feels a little bit like um, that these little, two little verses, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, are like the wardrobe into Narnia. <laughs> like they, man, I'm doing a lot of Christian references this morning, okay? <laughs> Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, I'm covering them all, okay? Uh, but the, 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 like, the idea that like these two little verses you would think like, what, what's even here? Is this just a little wardrobe? And it's like on the other side of these two verses is a, is, is a whole other universe. And this is our little doorway in. Now, I find it ironic that these two little verses I've written you know, several pages of notes on, um, and the Lord was content just to give us two verses, um, as if my five pages can do better than that. But here we go. We're gonna dive in. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. What do they show us about God, and how does this wardrobe explode our imaginations into the universe behind it. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, three things that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 show us about this God, and therefore what they show us about ourselves. First, this God, this maker, is infinite, what do you feel when you read those first two verses? Do you, do you feel the vastness of the scene? Do, do you feel the, the enormity of the maker that is talking about? It's been said before, no one goes to the Grand Canyon for an ego boost. Like you don't walk up to the edge of it and go, man, I feel huge. Like the, the Grand Canyon is meant to right size us. The same could be said on Genesis 1, 1 and 2. No one reads Genesis 1, 1 and 2 for an ego boost. That you feel the infiniteness of the God that it's talking about. Even the language that's being used is so, it's meant to be broad. It's meant to be huge. It's meant to make you feel your right sizing. Because here's what Genesis 1.1, first verse, just told you. In the beginning, that is, just the first three words, in the beginning, at the commencement of time. Like, at the place that is the farthest possible place that your finite human mind can go back to. That doesn't mean that's all that there is or all that there ever has been, but it's the earliest place that the human brain can go back to. At that moment, there was a God who created the heavens and the earth. He created the whole world and everything that it contains were created by him according to his will, which was operating without restraint. 
He created the universe by the word of his power, meaning everything that you and I know to be existent, galaxies and molecules and heartbeats and whole other planets and universes are like dust to him. They're small to him because he spoke them into existence. Is that the kind of person that you would like to hire for your personal assistant? Like, is that the kind of person you would go, man, look at this, fastness. I think he's probably got some good advice for me. I think that he could probably help me figure out some problems and then like maybe I could be done with him. Or is this the kind of God that if you really begin to grasp the Narnia behind this wardrobe, you would go, this is way bigger than anything I've ever imagined. Like, how do you feel, or how do you think you should feel standing before this God? This is the God who, verse one says, created the heavens and the earth, which that little phrasing, heavens and the earth, is just ancient Near East shorthand for everything. Think about it from their point of view. They didn't have a word for universe or galaxies because they didn't know those existed. And so when they say heavens and the earth, heavens is literally just the word skies, which represents what we would call like other dimensions and other heavens. When they say heavens and the earth, think about it from their perspective. That's everything to them. They don't know of anything else that exists outside of the heavens, the skies and the blue and the clouds that they can see and everything beyond that and everything that is divine and mysterious behind that and what's above that and what's beyond. And they have the skies and the heavens and the earth. So when Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, they're saying he created everything. And so this God who made everything at the same time, the reader would know, has an infinite knowledge of everything. I'm reading a book right now called 12 Things God Can't Do and Why It Can Help You Sleep at Night. It's fantastic. Although I've got a newborn, so it's not helping me sleep at night. But the, the, the reality is like, let's talk about some of the attributes of God by talking about what he can't do. It's fascinating. It's written by a Cambridge scholar and it's really, really practical. Go get it. If you can't afford it, I'll buy it for you. But the, the first chapter is God can't learn anything. And it's not that God can't learn anything because the amount of information that his brain can hold has been maxed out. And now he, like he can't, it's not like a water basin that's full of water. If you put more water in, it's just gonna spill out. Sorry, God, your brain's full. No, when we say God can't learn anything, it's because there's a form of knowledge that comes by creating something. If I built a piece of furniture or assembled a computer with all of its parts, there would be a level and a maximization of the knowledge that I would have of the thing that I built because I built it. I would have knowledge, more knowledge than anyone else about that object because I made it. So if God made everything, space, time, matter, atoms, days, stars, eagles, mountains, hearts, longings. He has an infinite knowledge of everything he has made. So God can't learn anything else, not because his brain can't hold any more information, but because there is literally no information about those things which he does not have because he made those things. Feel big yet? This includes... Every motion of every molecule, every atom, and every subatomic particle throughout the universe, from its beginning to its end, and all the interactions and the effects of those moving pieces and what effects those have had on other moving pieces, he knows them perfectly and instantly, and he does not rely on their existence or even their changing existence for him to know everything about them. 
The God of Genesis 1-1 is infinite. That's just the first verse. Verse two. Verse two begins to unpack a little bit kind of the next steps towards God speaking and how he fashioned the world. That's three through the end of the chapter. Verse two, though, kind of is getting you from this summary statement of God created the heavens and the earth and it's walking us towards how he did that. And listen to verse two. Verse two gives three separate clauses, three separate phrases that are all saying the same thing. And it's trying to overwhelm the reader with a sense of awe because listen to what it's saying. The earth was without form and void. That's one way of saying it. And darkness was over the face of the deep. That's another way of saying it. And the spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. When it says there that it was, the earth was without form and void, that's literally the Hebrew tovu vavohu. Great baby names. Which literally means wild and wasteland. The technical, it's, that's kind of, it's kind of a phrase, but the technical words, tovu and vavohu, literally mean this, wilderness and emptiness. For an ancient Near East person reading this, slaves leaving Egypt reading this, you could not describe a more overwhelming sense of nothingness than to say wilderness and nothingness. Like the emptiness of the nothingness, the black wholeness of the the, the chaos of nothing, <laughs> that there is nothing there and I'm overwhelmed like staring out at a vast ocean out in the middle of the sea with no land on the horizon and just black ocean everywhere. This is what the author of Genesis 1-2 is trying to say to you. This is the chaotic and unordered reality that existed before reality existed. Blowing your mind yet? In ancient Near East cosmology, every other people group, Every other tribal group had an origin story of where the universe came from. And they had origin stories and they all referred to this chaotic cosmic sea. Genesis 1-2 says the face of the waters. And everybody means the same thing when they say that. There was this pre-creation state. It's this neutral, functionless state of non-organization and nothingness. The chaos of a black hole because there's literally just nothing there the non-reality that preceded creation, the chaotic state, the disarray, the disorder, the overwhelming amount of nothingness that would undo any of us if we stood before it. And what does Genesis 1, 2, so you're kind of getting this tovu vavohu, this, the waters in the face of the deep, like I'm, I'm, I'm like an interstellar now, like I'm in, I'm in places that I can't comprehend what does Genesis 1-2 say about the infinite God of Genesis 1-1 in relationship to all of that tovu vavohu? What does it say about him? What's his relationship to this chaotic pre-creation state? Yes, there was chaos in the beginning, but this God, this Elohim, is above it. All the chaos, all the fear, all the questions, all the confusion... All the wilderness and emptiness, God is above it. Meaning, he's not afraid of it. Hey, Egyptian slaves, you just left chaos in Egypt. You were a slave, 
Your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents were all slaves, and the gods that you were forced to worship all have a chaotic existence, and the Pharaoh who made you work and, and worship him, he created a chaotic existence for you, and now you're in a wilderness. Now you're in a desert. You have only known chaos, and it feels like you are only belonging in this chaotic state of desert and slavery, and what are we, and who are we, and who is this God who brought us out of there? You're told in the first two verses, this God is above all of that chaos and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In every other ancient Near East uh, cosmic tale about how the world began, and I've not read all of them, but there are some well-known ones, but scholars that I read have read all of them and they would say this, in every other origin story, in every other story of how the universe began and how we got to where we are, there were gods there and there was chaos there and there was always a power grab. There was always a mutiny. There was always all these gods clamoring for the top so that they could rule the world that they found themselves in and they could be at the top of the, of the god and goddess food chain. The wars fought, the chaos trying to be unraveled. Give me the power, give me the throne. And then you read Genesis 1, 1 and 2. This God is not clawing for power at the beginning of time. This God invented time. This God is not fighting for position as king of the gods because he's the only God there. And so scholars have noted that when you compare the, the Israeli Jewish origin story with all of the other ancient Near East origin stories, this one stands out, notably stands out, for being quite and powerfully tranquil. Yes, there's chaos. Yes, there's disorder. Yes, there's tovu vavohu. Yes, there's, what is this? But there's this supreme being who's over it. There's this supreme being who's not afraid of it. There's this supreme being who is actually commanding it, and he's hovering over the face of these waters. The waters, the chaos, the sea in ancient Near East and all throughout scripture always represents chaos. Always represents chaos and who will command these waters. So all these Egyptian slaves had ever known was that their world was full of pain and chaos. Their gods were chaotic, their life was chaotic, they had no purpose, they had no meaning, they had no identity. And now the God of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is above all of that hovering over the face of the waters, not being drowned in it and trying to find his way to the top from it. He is above the tovu vavohu. Who is this God? That's what the slaves of Egypt, leaving Egypt on their way out through the Exodus, that's how they would have received these first two verses with awe and wonder. I don't comprehend this God. He's already breaking all the rules of all the other gods I've been told about. And the invitation of these first two verses is that you don't have to comprehend this God, but like these former Egyptian slaves who were the first readers of it, perhaps you're drawn in and maybe you want to know him a bit more. Perhaps the mystery and the majesty and the awe and the wonder is going, he's different. There's something here that is not like everything else. It was G.K. Chesterton who properly said, it is the poet who only asks to get his head into the heavens but it is the logician, like the one who uses logic, who seeks to get the heavens into his head and his head explodes. It is his head that splits, he says. But as the poet who just says, can I just poke my head into the heavens and peer around? I'm not pretending to understand it all, but can I just gaze in awe and wonder at this for a moment? And so it's not ironic that Genesis 1 is a poem. 
we'll look at it next week. It's, it's a heightened form of poetry we'll talk about. But there isn't really a, it's not trying to answer all of your scientific questions. It's, it's actually trying to draw you in to go, your science may not work here because there's a God who invented all of this and who created all of this and you may not fully comprehend him. Would you stand in awe of him? Because this God is infinite. And like we said, there's no information that this God does not already have. The God of Genesis 1 cannot learn anything, not because his brain capacity is full, but because there is no knowledge that he does not already have. He knows all of reality because he made all of reality. Now, play that out a little bit. Roll that into our second thing that these first two verses show us about God. Not only does he have infinite knowledge of everything that he's created, but in this state of knowledge, because he made everything, including time and space, that means that he also knew how this creation project would go. When he created space and time, he knew exactly how he would intentionally play out space and time. Okay, great movie, great scene, but it's totally different Genesis 1, 1, and 2 is then when Doctor Strange in Infinity War is playing out all the possible scenarios of all the possible universes and multiverses to see how this turns out for them. And they say, how many scenarios where it's good for us? And he says, one. It's a great scene. Not Genesis 1, 1, and 2, though. Not the same. God didn't create everything, speak it into existence, and above the chaos then go, I hope it works out. (laughs) Like, I really... Iron Man, can you do it? Like he's not, he's, not, he's not wondering how his project's going to unfold. Because he invented time, because he created space and time, because he created universes and multiverses, he was not wondering how they might roll out. Instead, what the Bible says is he had an infinite knowledge of reality and intentionally wrote that story of reality. So God, the God of Genesis 1 is not just infinite, he's intentional. About a dozen times in the New Testament, there's this peculiar, 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 weird phrase that's used in the New Testament. Paul uses it, Jesus uses it, John uses it, Peter, uh, uh, basically every letter in the New Testament, I think, uses this, uh, at some point, every writer in the New Testament uses this phrase. It's the phrase that is basically trying to let the reader in the New Testament know that we're talking about this scene in Genesis 1, 1, and 2. He's trying to, the New Testament writers are trying to take the reader back to Genesis 1, 1, and 2 to try to illuminate this very mysterious 1, 1, and 2 moment to let the reader know what was going on in the mind of the Trinity when God was unrolling reality, okay? And here's the phrase that gets used over and over again, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. What was going on in the scene in the Trinitarian Godhead before the foundation of the world? Before the beginning. So first Peter would tell you that before the foundation of the world, the Lord chose you. John 17, when Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer, he says before the foundation of the world, the Trinity was dancing. There was glory being shared in the Trinity. There was love that already existed before he even spoke the world into existence. Before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. It's, it's all over the New Testament. But then Revelation 19 says something Kind of mind-blowing. I mean, it's all mind-blowing, like before the beginning. What are we talking about? But here's, and, and, and the writers are not trying to go, 
well, they had this board meeting and, they, and the Trinity decided like, here's, that's, not, that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to get the, the imagination of the reader to awaken to the reality that the Trinitarian Godhead is more supreme than you can realize. And so before the foundation of the world, here's what Revelation 19 says. Before the foundation, before he spoke, before as he's hovering over the waters in the face of the deep, as, that, as the Godhead is there, Revelation 19 says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. What? The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb, Jesus, was slayed before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean he died on the cross in Genesis 1-1. That's not what he's talking about. It's not trying to apply space-time logic chronologically to Genesis 1-1. What it's saying is, is, do you know that when God spoke the world into existence, he was thinking about the cross? In other words, whatever else was going on, the Lord, in this Genesis 1-1 scene, was the moment that God the maker knew he would become God the redeemer. So whatever else you may imagine about this scene, here's two things that scripture is very clear about. The maker knew he would make it, and the maker knew he would redeem it. And when he spun the galaxies, he also knew what it would cost him. And when he knew what it would cost him, he still did it. What kind of supreme being are we talking about? What kind of supreme being is that willing? What kind of supreme being is that loving? What kind of supreme being is willing to write the story of reality through the cosmos in space and time and write his own suffering into the story? My favorite seminary professor said that he believes that when God was spinning the galaxies in Genesis 1, 1, and 2, he had tears in his eyes. He was smiling and he was dancing and he was singing, but he knew what it would cost him. And he still did it. Like he knew how all of reality would unfold. He wasn't Dr. Stranging, uh, I hope this doesn't cost me. He knew it would cost him. And he still did it. So this infinite God is also this very meticulously intentional God knowing how each day of the story would play out and that included the day of Calvary. Who is this God? But then it gets even better. Because not only is the God of Genesis 1-1 infinite and intentional, if you combine both of those realities of Genesis 1-1 and 2 and the God that it's talking about, we also see that he's also intimate. He's infinite and he's intentional, but he's also deeply intimate. Later on in the Old Testament, King David, king of Israel, who wrote much of the, the book of Psalms, uh, will pen the very memorable words of Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite psalms in all of uh, the book. And part of what David is in awe of in Psalm 139 is that he says, look, I... I know that you have like a knowledge and an infinite knowledge of everything. I know that you're the maker. I know that you're the creator. So you are supreme. But I can't, I can't get over how much you know me. He says, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise, you know my thoughts before I even speak a word. You know it before I know it. You know my longings and you know my fears. Lord, creator, maker, how do you know me like this? And then David realizes in verse 12 of Psalm 139, 
Lord, you know me like this because you made me. It says, but you saw my unformed body and you, you, you wove me together in the depths of the earth. You formed me, you wired me. You saw me before there was a me to see. It's as if he's saying, even before there was a David to know, God knew him completely. Which means, David maybe doesn't know David as well as the Lord knows David. And even more extraordinary than that, like we've said about God's infinite and intentional knowledge, if it drills down into David, think of the intimacy of this. God knows, God knew everything and every day about David's life. He says, every single one of my days was written in your book before one of them came to pass. You knew how every day was gonna go, even before I drew a breath. Now, apply this. Think about how David's standing in all of this and take this scene and this infinite, intentional God and then understand this. This is from this book. Part, part of this is from this book, 12 Things God Can't Do, that has been very, very good. It's by Nick Tucker. He says, so God knows the whole you perfectly from beginning to end for the whole of your life, which means this. God's not getting to know you. <laughs> he already knows you. But we have this belief, this, this experiential religion that tells us like, well, if God really knew me, then he would or wouldn't. Or I feel like I have to tell God how I'm feeling and what I'm thinking because he doesn't really seem to be getting me. God's not getting to know you. He already knows you better than you know you. Which means he knows your groanings, he knows your longings, he knows your insecurities, he knows your blind spots, your weaknesses, your fantasies, he knows your shame and even your future in every possible detail. That should pause us for just a moment. Because you may go, okay, thanks for the facts about God. God knows me better than I know myself. But hold on, hold on, hold on. Everyone in this room, because you live in Nashville, and if you don't live in Nashville, then welcome to our crazy, because here's what we all do. We're all obsessed with self-discovery. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what if, what if, the self-discovery we're all obsessed with isn't found on the other side of just mere self-exploration. What if the, the self we were dying to know was found on the other side of being known intimately by the God who made me and knows everything about me? And he has infinite, intimate knowledge of me that maybe if you really, really, really want to know you, if you want to know you, what if the truth about you could be revealed to you by your maker instead of being discovered by you on your own? What if that's the path to self-discovery? I need the one who made me to show me who I am. I actually need the one who created me to tell me what is most true about me and my tics and my fears and my longings and my gifts and what I need because of those things. God knows you because he created you. So would you sigh for just a moment to believe that the God of Genesis 1, the God who you believe to be far off from you, knows you better than you know you because he's not getting to know you. He already knows you. 
He knows when you groan. He knows when you're afraid. He knows what you need before you know what you need. In fact, he so knows what you need before you even know what you need. That's why he slayed the lamb before the foundations of the world. He knew you would need Jesus before you even existed. He knew you would need Jesus. So guess what he wrote into the story? Himself suffering for you. He was already providentially orchestrating the story to meet your deepest need before you even had an idea what a need was. He still planned it out for you. Your maker, who was hovering over the waters of Genesis 1, planned out your redemption before you ever asked for it. So do this like two plus two with me. Do this math equation with me. Do this like gospel math. Your maker knows everything about you. He knows everything about you. Even the things that you try to act like aren't there, so if you can act like they're not there long enough, then maybe they won't be there anymore. Even the things that you try not to tell other people because if they found out that that was what was true about you, they may leave you. Even the things that you want to be true about you but aren't true yet, and you don't know if they'll ever be true. He knows everything about you. And he still decided to be your redeemer. So in the deepest recesses of your heart, in the darkest places that you try to conceal and hide from yourself, you need to know this, they are an open book to God. He sees all of it. And in seeing all of it, he doesn't leave you. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. She says this, all of our human relationships hinge to some extent on hiding. You're welcome, marriages. But everybody in here is in relationships where we are natural-born hiders. We learned this in the garden. We'll get to this. When we hid with our fig leaves, we'll talk about this. You are a natural hider, and all of our relationships hinge on some degree to a bit of not showing you all of me. But Psalm 139 would say, because of Genesis 1, there is one relationship where this is not so. The you that Jesus died for is not the sanitized version of you. Jesus died for the real you. And he knows the real you because he made you. This is the God who cannot learn anything else. And this God who cannot learn anything else is the God who knows everything about you. And that's the you that he slayed Jesus for before the foundations of the world. There is nothing new he could learn about you. There's nothing new that could be revealed to him about you that would put him off from you. God really knows you, and in really knowing you, he really loves you. That's the God of Genesis 1, 1 and 2. He's infinite, he's intentional, and he's intimate. Let's pray and worship this God together. Jesus, as David says, uh, your eyes saw our unformed body. And now our, our formed body that carries our stories with it, carries our sorrow, it carries our trauma, it carries our pain, it carries our addictions, it carries our fear, it carries our joy. You saw our unformed body and you moved closer. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You know what I will be afraid of before I'm even afraid of it. You know what I need before I even know what I need. And so Jesus, would you, would you not 
shame our questions, but would you free us from demanding that our questions be answered? Would you just cause us to come and sit in the mystery and majesty of this intimate, infinite, and intentional God? As we close in song, Jesus, would you be palpably present with us, giving us comfort as we leave this place, knowing that we may not understand you, but we can know you because you have revealed yourself to us. We pray in your name, amen.